All right. Welcome, everybody. I think we've got some folks probably going to get a refresher on uh, some coffee, uh, but um, I think this is, this is a core panel to what this conference is all about. This is the Capital Markets Panel, and we're very lucky to have a very distinguished group of folks to talk about where we are in the state of the capital markets. Uh, first, let me introduce them. Um, to my immediate left, Christopher uh, Volpicelli, who is a managing director in Citigroup's Global Transportation Group and leads uh, the bank's U.S. shipping investment banking practice. Um, to her left, we have Jay Kwan, who is head of DNB Markets Americas, uh, corporate finance team, and shipping investment banking. Uh, then we have uh, John uh, Cyrus, pronounced like Miley, who's a managing director at Guggenheim Securities, focusing on esoteric uh, ABS assets, including maritime securitizations. And last but not least, my friend Chris Wires, who is a managing director and head of maritime investment banking at Stiefel. So just to kick it off, I think um, it's no mystery to everyone that at the beginning of the year, many observers uh, and some analysts and experts were cautiously optimistic or even bullish on where the equity markets were going uh, for many, if not most, of the shipping sectors, obviously with certain caveats, but there was a, a sense of ro a robust optimism. We got six months into it, people were stepping back. We all know there were a few deals that were having some difficulty in getting done, and people were a little bit less than cautiously optimistic. And where we are now is that essentially the equity capital markets are very, very difficult for most shipping companies other than those that are already listed and have big balance sheets and can go back to market. So one of the obvious questions is, you know, what, what happened? Why are we where we are? And uh, what, what can we uh, expect going forward, at least for the short to medium term? Um, so in no, uh, maybe we'll start with uh, Krista, and you can maybe give us a sense of where you think things are, why we are where we are, and where we might be going. Sure. <clears throat> Making sure this works. Um, happy to comment. Um, I agree with your opening statements in the sense that this year has certainly been a challenging one in terms of capital formation in really all of the shipping sectors. Um, issuances are, are way down in, in the U.S. markets. Um, but I, I think in some ways, it's not completely a surprise, and you know we have been talking about the trend for a while now in terms of differentiated access to capital, and that is something that we believe is still going to persist in the sector. Um, you know, we've just heard from panelists talking about alternative sources of capital on the lending side. Um, you know, the trends in terms of who has access to traditional uh, secured bank financing continue in terms of, you know, those who have access to the very cheap financing are the larger companies who are doing more things with their banks. Uh, the smaller companies have access to more expensive capital. But there are sources of capital there. It is just much more expensive for smaller companies versus larger companies. And so I think, you know, you will continue to see trends of 
investors in the public equity markets wanting to see larger companies where they can have a greater degree of trading liquidity. They would like to see differentiated platforms. Um, there are some sectors of shipping where there's lots of publicly listed companies already. Um, there are some where there are fewer, but the key question is what is a particular opportunity offering as a unique investment thesis besides value? Uh, because in those cases, it's easiest to just use value and an investor always can come in at some price, which usually is not, um, not what the owner wants to see. Um, but um, we believe that you know, the markets will be there. Uh, but we are going through some growing pains as companies adjust to the new realities and uh, the differentiated access which we expect to persist. So, Jay, before you comment, I, just to be clear, we're talking about the capital markets. Um, this question in particular is about the equity capital markets. There are obviously other types of uh, markets, the debt capital markets, um, that, that we can talk about as well. But for this purpose, Jay, on the, sure. on the equity side. Yeah, so I, I agree with Krista. I think on the equity side specifically, it has been much more challenging, I think, than most people expected. I think we started out the year uh, actually quite bullish, and I think what we've seen more and more of is uh, investors taking a more, uh, you know, having much more scrutiny around uh, market cap and, and certainly in terms of liquidity. And so um, we think this is actually a positive development overall because I think one of the things that we are seeing more of is there's increased focus around consolidation, which again is a term that I think we've heard for many years, but I think we are actually starting to see some movement in that direction. And so um, I would say that if the one thing that, uh, that we have seen certainly on the public equity market side, I think more investors are focused around consolidation. Um, I would say at least on the private side though, again, focusing specifically on equity, we have seen um, transactions getting done on the private side. Um, and I think most people are familiar with and now uh, certainly the Norwegian markets, which I think has seen quite a bit of activity even on the equity side again, um, where either based on a certain project or based on certain value proposition. And so we have seen uh, equity capital raised. Uh, certain sectors are certainly much are in much more favor than others. Um, so I don't wanna make it sound like there has been absolutely no activity uh, because there has been activity actually and, and reasonable amount of equity capital raised um, in more in what I would call the more private markets uh, and more nuanced markets within Oslo. But uh, certainly on the, on the US capital market side, I, I fully agree with Chris, there clearly uh, has been a slowdown and I think, you know, I think that in all respects, I think this, hopefully is a wake-up call for, uh, in terms of the importance of consolidation and liquidity, and uh, I, I, I'm actually quite bullish on that, so I suspect that that will help drive potentially future uh, capital raises um, as we head into next year. John, I know you're an ABS guy, but what are your views generally? Yeah, you know, I think um, the securitization market is a great alternative for a number of shipping companies. You know, what, what securitization is, you know, put simply, is that we ring fence the assets in a bankruptcy remote vehicle, which helps us delink the assets and the cash flow generation from the corporate risk and achieve an investment grade um, rating uplift and issue, you know, cheaper financing for companies where it works. We recently did a deal for Harley Marine Services, which was the first maritime transportation whole business securitization. And, and the reason Harley Marine was a, a good candidate and the reason the um, transaction worked was that the things I look for in a securitization candidate are identifiable revenue generating assets. In the Harley deal, we had 122 
vessels, which were tugs and barges, which was great. I look for recurring contractual um, revenues. In you know Har Harley's business, we had the vast majority of the revenues were recurring cash flows from investment-grade oil majors who've been their customers for 20-plus years. I look for a mission-critical service, strong operating performance, and high barriers to entry. You know, all those boxes were, were checked in the Harley deal, and a number of shipping companies um, benefit from the same. You know, Harley was a Jones Act um, business, which has um, very high barriers to entry. But even without the Jones Act, due to the replacement cost of some of the fleets and the specialized nature, of all kinds of vessels and, and drill ships, there's uh, the securization market is a great alternative to companies who may not be seeing the financing that they've historically seen in the bank market. Our, our deals are, are largely sold to um, insurance companies and asset managers, and you know, in the Harley deal, we had over a billion dollars of orders for a $455 million um, you know, bond offering. So you know, we think that's kind of the next wave of financing that could be available to you know shipping companies. Chris, I guess it's my turn. So you know, <laughs> as it relates to the capital markets, I won't comment so much on the securitization market. But you know, I, I generally agree with you know the other two um, two panelists. But I just add you know a couple comments. One, I think overall in shipping, you know, if you look outside of the common equity markets, you know the bank markets and the capital markets are pretty good for shipping companies. I think generally there's good access to, um, to bank debt at low cost. There's good access coming from these Chinese leasing companies. The capital markets, you know, for good credits are, you know, willing to pr provide capital at, you know, good terms. Um, you know, we just saw, you know, Diana raise money in Norway at unsecured at nine and a half percent. We just did a um, preferred offering for C-SPAN a couple weeks ago at, at eight percent. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, outside of common equity, the markets are, are working well. And, and with common equity, there's, you know, there's, you know, I'd say it's not working well at all right now. And I'd say it's primarily not working well, in my opinion, because most of the companies that are trying to access the markets are trying to do it, you know, primarily as asset plays. And, you know, people have been trying to make money on asset plays and shipping since the financial crisis, and nobody's really made money that way yet. Um, I think that, you know, the U.S. markets are going to, you know, be back and be back, you know, with a bit of a vengeance, um, you know, as soon as these companies start generating cash flows and people are confident, you know, that they're going to continue to generate cash flows, um, you know, the, that's what, you know, the U.S. investors typically looking for, you know, on, on the equity side, in my opinion. And then, the, you know, the other thing that companies really need to think about is good corporate governance. Um, because shipping's, you know, been plagued by not so good corporate governance and, you know, companies doing things, you know, that at least shareholders deem not to be in shareholders' best interest. So as it relates to the companies going forward, when, you know, when the underlying shipping markets improve, they're going to have the best access to capital. It's going to be those with, you know, good corporate governance. And I think new IPOs that come to market are it's going to be essential that they all have, you know, good corporate governance as well. Okay, that's a that's a debate that's been uh, going on for quite some time in uh, many of the markets. Uh, what is the relationship between good corporate governance, as determined by some measurable way, uh, and uh, the performance of companies in terms of equity investment? And um, obviously, what you're saying, Chris, is that that's going to be an important element going forward. What are some of the other factors that a company? Uh, would need to to have to uh, raise money, whether it's equity or 
in some of the debt capital markets you're talking about. Um, we have the Norwegian bond market that's become, you know, one of the popular flavors uh, in recent uh, couple of recent years. Um, Krista, what what do you think the factors are, the the characteristics that a company would need to have in order to find access to capital in any of these markets? Um, I I think the keys are. What does the balance sheet look like? What kind of capital are you trying to raise and how does that fit into your overall balance sheet and your overall kind of near-term risk-adjusted return profile for that investor base and the longer term, right? If you're looking to raise unsecured debt, uh, whether it's in the Norwegian markets or in the US markets for a shipping company, the investors are going to look at how levered is the company today? Is it a spot focused entity or contracted focused entity and how much debt is ahead of that that unsecured bond, right? That's going to be a key question. If you're looking to raise equity, the question becomes more, you know, what's happening in the cycle? Uh, what are my earnings? What is the dividend? Dividend is a very um, nuanced topic today. Um, you know, we used to get up here six, seven years ago, and people would talk about dividend yield as a way to sell equity. Today, I think investors are looking for a dividend policy which is balanced in the context of overall capital structure and where a particular company is in its cycle. So there's lots of different combinations that can work. Um, and so whether it's equity or whether it's debt, the investor is going to look at where does that security sit within the capital structure and what is the, the near-term next 12 months and what's the next five years look like in terms of that trajectory. Jay, what factors? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the factors, you've got sort of macro factors and you've got micro factors and I think you have to consider, as Krista mentioned, it's very company specific. I think for companies this year, who have been successful raising capital, it's, it's for a specific purpose because they have a certain capital structure. And so, um, again, when the equity capital markets um, seem challenging, there are usually other ways to raise capital. We've seen companies looking at, as Chris mentioned, whether it's the preferred market or whether it's the unsecured bond market. And so, um, I think fundamentally it comes down to when we speak to our clients, it's about, you know, what is the right capital structure and how do we uh, explain the story to the relevant investors, whether it's on the equity or fixed income side. Uh, on the macro side, I think the, you know, there has been a lot of talk and discussion around uh, potential trade issues and trade wars, and um, it's hard to quantify and say this has been, you know, this has either impacts pricing or whether it actually impacts the ability to get a, get a transaction completed, but there's no doubt in my mind that I think certainly that risk is something that investors have highlighted, uh, certainly in discussions we've had, and so there's some uncertainty, which unfortunately uh, does plague the market in terms of where uh, trade uh, concerns and potential trade wars may, may arise, and so that certainly impacts certain uh, industries more than others, um, certainly where there's quite a bit of trade uh, between the U.S. and China. And so uh, I would say that the macro factors are also quite important here as well and especially in certain sectors where we are seeing rebound in rates. Uh, it's very hard, as you know, any logical investor can understand, if, if, you're, if the rates today on the, on the spot market are below break even, it's very hard to actually sell an equity story. And so, you know, I would say that besides sort of the, the, the macro trade, but also where the freight rate environment for that particular sector is, uh, is, is absolutely an important factor when we look at raising capital. Yeah, you hear at least 
those of us non-experts like me, you read in the trade press that mo many of the sectors are under more stress than they had been earlier in the year, other than LNG in some respects. And uh, the tariffs, certainly emerging market weakness, haven't, uh, haven't helped. Uh, so those are probably additional macro factors. Um, John, for the type of capital market deal you do, which is a little bit of a variation, um, the deal you did was a Jones Act, U.S. flag, barge, and tug uh, deal. Um, are there other types of companies, non-U.S. companies, that might be able to structure something that would work? Yes. No, I think, um, you know, securitization and debt, and just before jumping to that, I would say uh, on the factors in the debt markets where investors look to the potential downside, you know, to me, I think one of the keys is showing resilience through different economic cycles. Because when, you know, rating agencies rate our bonds, they look over the, you know, ebbs and flows over a long period of time. So, you know, so this doesn't just work for, for Jones Act. It really works for any company that has, you know, assets that can show that resilience through different cycles, that can show value and can show the, the ability to generate the, the recurring cash flows. And because um, it really does come back to, when you know you're in in the investment grade market, and to put this in perspective, I know you know some of the colleagues were talking about you know nine ten percent debt, you know the, the Harley deal at Triple B, those by, by bonds priced at you know five seventy five, and the blended capital structure through six and a half times was was five point eight eight percent. So it, it really it isn't related to the Jones Act. It really just comes through you know identifiable assets, mission critical services, and you know right now with. Um, some of the specialization, you know, I think that really for, you know, Jones Act and non-Jones uh, Act companies, when you can show that, or if you have long-term contracts, which um, a lot of the, you know, petroleum transportation, um, you know, shipping companies do, you know, those work really, really well in the securitization markets. Chris, what do you see as factors contributing to whether, whether shipping companies can get access to one market or another? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the beauty of the markets is there's lots of them. So I think all companies have access to one market or another. If I focus on, you know, a couple of the markets that, you know, we've got expertise on, um, you know, if, if, if you look at the bond market and the institutional term loan market, at least in the U.S., companies, you know, tend to um, need to show some level of cash flow to get leverage in those markets. They look at, you know, debt to EBITDA multiples and, you know, interest coverage multiples. Um, they, they look at asset coverage as well, but not exclusively. So you need to kind of show good asset coverage and you need to show, you know, cash flow coverage as well, at least as you, you look out over the term of the, um, over the term of the loan. But there's other markets, you know, that aren't so focused on cash flows per se, you know, which I, I'd put point more towards the, um, you know, some of the leasing, and, and bank loans, and um, you know, a lot of those companies, you know, are, are comfortable lending just off of assets, even when companies don't have, you know, substantial cash flow to support that today, because they expect the markets will recover, and you know, they will support it over the um, over the term of the loan. So, you know, and, and then you've got, you know, these kind of small specialized credit markets as well, you know, which would be which which would kind of be the most expensive form of capital that companies would go after. And, you know, they, they, they typically will take, you know, LTVs as high as, you know, 70, 80, you know, even potentially 90% if you've got, you know, good contract coverage. And they look at a combination of, um, you know, asset coverage and, um, and cash flow. The equity markets today are, um, you know, as I said before, just, you know, I think particularly challenging. I'd, I'd say the, the, the bright spot in the equity markets is LNG. 
Um, there's, you know, a lot of public LNG shipping companies that, you know, have ready access to the market, I think, on an opportunistic basis. Um, you know, we've been wor working with some of the U.S. liquefaction-based companies, I think some of which are here today to present. I think those companies have, you know, good access to the, um, to the equity markets as well. So, you know, if, when the fundamentals, you know, improve like they have in LNG, I think it shows that the equity markets will be back. And I think we'll see the same with tankers. You know, when those markets start to improve, my own view is that's probably, you know, around, you know, 2020 when the emissions kind of regulations change and, and bulkers, you know, I think as soon as people get comfort that current earnings are here to stay, um, you, should, you should see more activity there as well. Here to stay is a relative term, I guess, right? Hmm. For the, uh, the, the horizon of an average investor, whatever that is. Um, so some, I think, uh, Krista, maybe you mentioned, uh, or maybe Jay, about uh, consolidation. Uh, I know there's a panel later on that's gonna talk specifically about it, but um, people have been talking in this industry, most of the sectors for a very long time, particularly dry bulk. Um, tankers uh, and others that uh, consolidation is something that needs to take place in the industry. It's too fragmented, etc. Um, not quite sure what that means, too fragmented. But um, do you think that the volatility or the difficulty in access to at least the equity markets and that some companies would have trouble finding other markets is pushing toward this consolidation uh, or is it just a, a natural cycle? Um. I think Jay originally made the comment on consolidation, but I fully agree with his comment. And um, you know, we're we as a team are spending more time on M&A than we are on new IPOs and equity formation. Um, you are seeing it across every sector of shipping. Um, you know, in the last 18 months, you've seen more consolidation amongst the shipping liners. Um, and you know, today that is quite a consolidation, quite a consolidated sector, and then you add the alliances on top of it, and it is even further. Um, but you can go across the different segments of shipping, and you're seeing evidence of it, and you are starting to see some champions emerge in the public markets who have either you know done M&A already, or who are trying to pursue strategies of M&A. And obviously, it has to be. Um, thoughtful and make sense in terms of value uh, for both sides, in terms of what it brings. Uh, if you are consolidating two companies in the same sector, um, one of the biggest synergies uh, that we tend to think about is on the cost side. So by bringing two companies together, can you be more efficient in terms of spreading costs across a bigger entity? Um, the key question in shipping sectors tends to be, can you find revenue synergies? And uh, when people talk about fragmentation and, and you say, okay, the dry bulk sector is the most fragmented sector of shipping, the tanker sector a little bit less so, depending on what segment you're looking at. Um, but when you have a segment that's that fragmented, the question becomes, by bringing two companies together, does that really give you um, power to increase your revenues? And the answer might be that it doesn't. Um, but, you know, there's other ways that companies are achieving those benefits, whether that's through commercial pooling or otherwise. So I think you have to think about, you know, both the cost and the revenue synergies. Um, that can be difficult to think about within the maritime sector. But then I also, you also have to think about what it does to your balance sheet and access to capital. And so um, I think that there are tremendous benefits there, provided that the two companies um, fit together well. Jay? Yeah, I, I would, you know, I, I think consolidation, as we said, 
because we've, I think we've seen enough um, discussion about consolidation the last decade in shipping, and you know, I can count you know, uh, the number of uh, M&A discussions and transactions that have actually been completed. So I, I think the, but I think what we are definitely seeing is um, much greater awareness among um, companies and certainly uh, management and owners that without uh, liquidity and without size, that it's going to become much more difficult to um, really, you know, have access to the capital that maybe they've enjoyed previously. And so uh, I think this consolidation discussion, we'll, we'll see how things play out over the next couple of years, but I think you are seeing certainly several companies that um, have taken advantage of that and certainly have scale and size. We've seen that in the tanker side and dry bulk side, and I suspect that this is just the beginning. So um, I, I think that that's probably where I would say that most of the discussion and focus is on right now. And, and again, I, I think it's simply because the equity markets, as again, starting with that earlier discussion, I think the discussion among equity investors is pretty clear that they are expecting uh, larger capitalized, well-funded, you know, high liquidity companies that they would want to invest in. And again, that's, again, this is on the public side, different from the private placement discussions um, we, we, we mentioned earlier, but certainly on the public side, I think we're seeing that and we're seeing champions in certainly the tanker and dry bulk side today, and I expect that will continue. John? Yeah, I mean, on the like, industry con um, consolidation, I probably have to defer to the industry investment bankers to my, to my right. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> Chris? Yeah, so from, from, from my perspective, you know, I think consolidation, you know, is, is definitely increasing. I think it's definitely becoming, you know, more important to the industry. And I'd say my team's also spending probably, you know, more time on M&A than, than capital markets. Um, and historically, it's, it's the other way around. But, you know, with that as a backdrop, you know, shipping's always been a very challenging space to do consolidation, in, in part, in my view, because there's typically very limited cost synergies between merging two shipping companies. There's you know, just an announcement this week that Ensco and Rowan are merging, big offshore drilling companies. They, they announced that they expect you know, $150 million of cost synergies. Um, you know, when you see two big shipping companies merge, you're, you're talking you know, maybe five, 10 million of cost synergies, possibly less. Um, so from, from that perspective, you know, there's not a lot of benefits of, um, of, of merging. And then the other thing that I think is a, a big driver is, um, you know, if you look at the bank markets and the credit markets overall, they don't differentiate their cost of capital between the little guys and the big guys. You know, a, a small ship owner can, you know, borrow at effectively the same rate as a big ship owner. And yeah, you know, the real little guy can't really borrow at the same rate, but you know, by you know, little guy in the public markets, we're talking, you know, three, four, five hundred million dollar enterprise value company, and they borrow at exactly the same rate as, you know, a two or three billion dollar enterprise value company. Um, and then thirdly, you know, while I agree investors want, you know, large liquid companies in terms of market caps. There, there's not a big valuation discrepancy today between, you know, the smaller market cap and the larger market cap shipping companies. So even amongst the equity markets, you know, while we all know the institutions want consolidation and more liquidity, they, they, it doesn't really show up, you know, in share prices. Um, so, you know, I think it'll continue, but, you know, I, I think it's not gonna be, you know, as, as major a driver as some are projecting. So, Chris, you take issue with those who say that 
in all cases, size matters for all reasons. You would say that it depends. Yeah, I think it depends because you you, you know different you know diff different companies in maritime have different shareholder bases. So you know if you think about like the MLPs, for example, they they tend to have and and the uh, the dividend yielding companies, those that still exist, they tend to have a more you know retail focused shareholder base, and the institutions that own them are yield focused institutions. And and if you look at some of the larger you know guys like like a like a Euronav or an international seaways you know that are more kind of spot market focused they, they tend to have you know big institutional you know value and, and trend investors and, and hedge funds in a lot of cases as their investors so you know I think if, if you pay a yield um, and, and and you've got a you know a kind of a dividend payout strategy I think it's probably okay to be um, to be small as, as well as large uh, but for the you know the your asset plays today, um, you know, I think, I think large definitely, definitely helps. So we only have a few minutes left, but um, uh, I wanted to ask, um, there have been some prominent ship owners who have been very critical of other owners that have gone into the capital markets, raising funds uh, in the equity markets. And um, uh, how would you respond to that when somebody uh, uh, has had, you know, let's say a, a typical Greek shipping family had uh, ships for a very long time and um, comes to you and said, why should I come into the shipping? You know, why should I look at the capital markets? Why not take advantage of Chinese leasing or something like that? How would you respond? My, my response is if, if you have the personal wealth and balance sheet to support keeping a company private, then it's always nice to stay out of the public eye and, and not have to deal with everything that comes with being a public company. Um, but the reason that companies come to the public markets is to diversify access to capital, to have um, other sources of capital come in and institutionalize a company. And there's obligations that come with that. There's reporting obligations and you have obligations to a wider set of shareholders. But certainly if, if you don't need that equity capital, then I would say there's not a reason to go public. Fair point. Jay. Well, I, I would, um, you know, I think when we speak to our clients, uh, you know, going back to this whole scale discussion, we do um, have a pretty frank discussion around size and the ability to go public. And so uh, that is an important element of the discussion and, and why they would need the capital. So uh, I, I don't, I certainly don't discourage companies who say I'm thinking about going public. I think we, we take a, um, a view and say, okay, what are the, what's the value proposition? What's the reason why someone would want to invest in this particular company? And so uh, I would say that it's, again, based on, I think, increased scrutiny that we see from investors. But uh, I, I, I am hopeful that we are going to see more capital raised in the equity markets as we head into 2019. Uh, we have seen capital raised in, in non-US markets, clearly. And so, uh, but I do expect that we will see more capital raised in the U.S. It may not necessarily be IPOs. It's probably more follow-on offerings. But, um, and I'm hoping for the, you know, the next IPO that will occur. But I suspect that it would be, it will, it will take all the boxes that we were just talking about before um, to to really drive investor attention and 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 to help um, price successfully. John, somebody comes to see you and says, "Why should I do one of your deals?" Yeah, so in the securitization market, if you can, you know, survive the rating agency scrutiny and achieve that investment grade ratings, you tend to um, get lower cost of funds, 
higher leverage, you could lock in, you know, fixed rate in a rising interest rate environment, you know, softball maturity, more flexibility, and really, I think most importantly, as a platform to grow. Once you kind of build the box, it's easy to tap the structures, issue new bonds, and just position yourself with a lower cost of funds than many of your competitors, and you know, better access to, um, to capital to, to grow your business. Chris, the last word. Yeah, I guess I, I guess to answer that question, I, I would, um, you know, I, I, I'd say, you know, the co the private companies that want to access the the public equity markets, I mean, there's very good reason why they want to do it. There's lots of kind of capital available for those companies that aren't available to private companies, um, whether it's you know public debt, you know preferreds, um, you know being able to do kind of regular follow-ons, do ATM offerings. Um, so it, it opens the door to, you know, a lot of alternatives that they wouldn't otherwise have. So, you know, the benefits of being public are, are huge, but, you know, there's no benefit of being public, in my opinion, if your shares don't trade at net asset value or above, um, as you can't really utilize any of those tools um, efficiently. Um, so, you know, I, if I were focusing on companies that want to access the markets, I'd, I'd be focusing on kind of, you know, what their value add is to justify, you know, valuation above net asset value, a long-term valuation above net asset value. All right. Well, we're about out of time. Uh, I want to thank our panelists. Really appreciate it. Uh, if folks have questions, certainly. I'm sure they'd be happy to answer uh, outside. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.